My topic this evening is Barnabas, the ministry of encouragement. And my text from Romans chapter 12 and verses 6 and 8, if a man's gift is encouraging, let him encourage. Long ago, in the last millennium, when pterodactyls still flew and brontosauruses gazed, grazed in the meadowlands, I was a boy <laughs> and was taken to see a production of Peter Pan. Actors flew across the stage on wires. Captain Hook menaced. And Tinkerbell, the fairy, was a point of light darting about the stage. At some point in the play, I don't remember where, Tinkerbell grew discouraged and her light began to fade. We were told to applaud to bring Tinkerbell back to life. We all clapped heartily. At first, her light faded further. Then it stabilized. And as the applause continued, finally returned to full power. I have never, as you can see, forgotten that lesson in the importance of encouragement. Indeed, it may be life-saving. Encouragement is not merely good manners. It is a biblical imperative, as our lessons make clear. The principal word for it in the New Testament is parakalon, the verb to encourage, and parakalese, the noun encouragement. You may recognize the close connection of encouragement and the Holy Spirit. Because in John's Gospel, the Spirit is described as the parakletos, the same Greek root, translated variously as the comforter, counselor, advocate. These are all actions of an encourager. Our English word encourage suggests the imparting of courage to the one who is assisted. Exhort or console are other ways to translate the Greek parakalon. In Romans chapter 12, Paul lists encouragement as one of the gifts of the Spirit, along with prophesying, serving, teaching, contributing to the needs of others, leadership, and showing mercy. Fast company for encouragement. In our gospel reading from Luke chapter 22, Jesus encourages Peter. He knows full well that Peter, despite his bluster about dying for Jesus, will deny him three times before daybreak. Jesus knows how hard Satan is working to destroy Peter's faith. But Petros is the name Jesus has given Simon. It means rock. And Jesus is encouraging Peter to become what he is called to be in the plan of God. Jesus says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And with Jesus' encouragement, forgiveness, and resurrection power, Peter does just that on Pentecost and thereafter. In Genesis chapter 50, Joseph, in an extraordinary act of forgiveness, encourages his brothers. The brothers who sold him into slavery and told his father he had been killed by a wild animal. 
but Joseph sees how God's will has been accomplished in all that has happened. As for you, he says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. Our reading ended, thus Joseph comforted them and spoke kindly to them. This is true encouragement. In Psalm 10, just one of many psalms with this theme, we are reminded that God comforts and encourages the afflicted. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that the man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. To strengthen their heart is to end courage. In reading Paul's letters, you may have noticed a pattern. After the opening salutation, there usually follows a section of doctrinal exposition about God and Jesus and the gospel. But sooner or later comes along the little word, therefore. It is the hinge on which the letter turns to application. What are we to do in response to these wonderful truths that Paul has laid out? Romans 12.1 is but one example of this hinge and this turning. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. These application passages in Paul's letters are in the form of exhortations, which is a strong kind of encouragement. But Paul's letters might never have been written, but for the central figure in this sermon, whom we heard from or heard about in the second lesson from Acts chapter 4, Barnabas, the very personification of the ministry of encouragement. Let's follow his ministry through the book of Acts to discover his influence on Paul. We meet him first, as we heard in chapter 4. His name is Joseph, not Barnabas. He's a Levite from Cyprus. The apostles give him the nickname Barnabas, which means in Aramaic, son of encouragement. In the spirit-filled euphoria of the early days of the church, when property was held in common by the disciples and signs and wonders were frequent. Joseph Barnabas sold a field and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And generosity is an essential requirement of encouragement because encouraging others takes time, which is scarce and precious, we know. And sometimes it takes funds which are precious and scarce, we also know. In Acts chapter 9, Paul, then called Saul, was converted on the road to Damascus through his encounter with the risen Lord Jesus, whom Paul, Saul had been persecuting by arresting Jesus' followers. Indeed, Saul was going to Damascus to continue this work among the Jews there. This Saul came back to Jerusalem after his conversion and wanted to join the apostolic band. But they were afraid that he was conducting a sting operation 
and would have nothing to do with him. But then Barnabas stepped forward to vouch for Saul, declaring that he had met the Lord and was truly a changed man, how Saul had preached the word in Damascus and himself escaped arrest with the help of fellow believers. Because of Barnabas' endorsement, Saul was welcomed into the church and began to preach boldly in Jerusalem. When Hellenized Jews tried to kill him, Saul was smuggled to the port of Caesarea to return to his hometown of Tarsus. In Acts chapter 11, we read of the mission of disciples from Cyprus and Cyrene to Greeks in Antioch. The Lord's hand was upon this mission, and a great number of Greek Gentiles believed in the gospel. News of this reached Jerusalem, and the apostles sent Barnabas, perhaps because he was himself from Cyprus, to investigate. When he arrived and saw evidence of the grace of God at work, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. We read he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and faith. From there, Barnabas went on to Tarsus to look for Saul. When he found Saul, he brought him back to Antioch. For a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. It was there that the disciples were first called Christians. And when prophets predicted a famine, donations were gathered by the church at Antioch, and Saul and Barnabas took the offering up to Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 12, Barnabas and Saul finished their mission and returned to Antioch, bringing with them John Mark, Barnabas' cousin. In Acts 13, the Holy Spirit instructed the church to set apart Barnabas and Saul for the mission to the Gentiles, to which I, the Spirit, have called them. When they set off on the first of his missionary journeys, Saul was thereafter called Paul, and the order of names was Paul and Barnabas, rather than Barnabas and Saul. From Cyprus, they went to Perga in modern Turkey, where John Mark left them to return to Jerusalem. In Iconium, the crowds acclaimed Paul as Hermes and Barnabas as Zeus, suggesting that he was a man of impressive size and bearing. When they returned to Antioch, they found that the problem of circumcision had become acute. Do Gentiles who repent and receive Jesus by faith and are baptized need also to be circumcised? In Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas brought this problem to a council of apostles in Jerusalem. They were vindicated by the council and returned to Antioch with a letter explaining what was expected of Gentile converts but it did not include circumcision and happily never has. Later in the chapter, we read of a falling out between Paul and Barnabas. Paul wanted to revisit the new churches planted on the first missionary journey. Barnabas agreed, but wanted to take John Mark with them. Paul refused, saying that it was not wise because John Mark deserted them on the original missionary journey. In the end, the two-part company Barnabas takes John Mark to Cyprus, and Paul chose Silas and set off on his second missionary journey. But Paul did not think less of Barnabas because they did not continue to work together. 
In his first letter to the Corinthians, written four or five years later, he referred to Barnabas as a noble example of an apostle who worked to support himself. And Barnabas was proved to be right about John Mark's potential to be a faithful follower of Jesus. In Colossians, Paul instructed the church, if he, John Mark, comes, welcome him. In his letter to Philemon, written at the same time, he referred to John Mark as a fellow worker. And in Paul's last letter, 2 Timothy, he requested that John Mark come to him in his final imprisonment because he would be, quote, helpful to me in my ministry. So Paul, the great apostle Paul, had an encourager, the son of encouragement, Barnabas, who vouched for him when others did not trust him, who went and found him and brought him to Antioch, where his sense of calling to reach out to Gentiles was awakened and confirmed, who accompanied him both in his first missionary journey and on his crucial plea to the Apostolic Council in Jerusalem to free the Gentile converts from the shackles of justification by the works of the law symbolized in the act of circumcision. And finally, who confronted Paul when his harsh judgment of John Mark would have retarded the young man's growth as a minister of the gospel. Let me put it bluntly. Without Barnabas, we would not have had Paul as an apostle to the Gentiles. There might not have been a mission to the Gentiles. And Christianity then would not have become a world religion, but remained an obscure and doubtless long since extinct sect within Judaism. Your ancestors would have continued to paint themselves blue and worship trees, and you would not be sitting here today. You see what encouragement meant to Paul and to the kingdom of God. So what's the therefore in this sermon? It should be obvious. Be a Barnabas. Be a son or daughter of encouragement. Help the fading tinkerbells in your life, which at some point is most of us, to come back bright through your encouragement. But that's too simple. I see at least three levels of encouragement in our human interactions. The first level is what I would call the affirmative buzz. It's the frequent, have a great day, hang in there, kid. If you can dream it, you can do it. Be all that you can be. Way to go. Don't give up the ship. It makes a difference to offer and receive this mild form of generalized encouragement. Of course, as a deep thinker and superior intellect, I make fun of it. But I'd miss it if I never received it, and so would you. I just want us to go further than the affirmative buzz. The second level of encouragement I would call selective cheerleading. This is when you get realistic and realize you can only give yourself to a finite number of people in your life, a very finite number, in fact. And so you choose some, consciously or unconsciously, whether they are family members, are attractive to you for different reasons, or seem especially needy in ways that you think you can help. You encourage them by affirming them and by embracing their life goals. You want to be a chiropodist? Great, I think you've got what it takes. You go to their senior recitals. 
You send encouraging emails before their big exams. You console them and urge them to keep fighting when they are passed over for promotion. You tell them they are better off without whoever it is who has just broken up with them. This is all wonderful, unless their life goals are wrong and not God's will, unless you are enabling selfish and even destructive behavior. You see, affirmative buzz and selective cheerleading, however helpful they are at times, are not a Christian ministry. Indeed, nothing I've said so far about them would exclude an entirely secular person from doing them. No, if we are to follow Barnabas into the ministry of encouragement, we've got to get to level three, which I call spiritual direction. Now, I don't mean capital S, capital D spiritual direction, which entails a fixed appointment with someone you go to see to share what God is or isn't doing in your life. This is important. Indeed, I aspire to do it myself. But I'm talking about small s, small d spiritual direction, by which I mean simply drawing alongside another person, asking the Spirit to guide you in the relationship, beginning to pray for and with them if they are a praying person, learning about their life situation and sense of God's presence or absence in their lives, and trying by listening, loving, serving, counseling, and even on occasion challenging them, all to nudge them along the path on which God is calling them. Always this spiritual direction form of encouragement must be done with humility, knowing what you don't know, and done always in love, which if it is agape love means willing and working the best for the beloved. And done always with a sense of the unique worth and dignity of that person you encourage as made in the image of God. So be Barnabas. Find your soul and encourage him or her. Let us pray. Lord God, we give ourselves to you this day in body, mind, and spirit. Pour out your Holy Spirit that we may be abundantly gifted for all the tasks to which you call us. But especially give us the gift of spirit-guided encouragement that in our circle of acquaintances the discouraged may be heartened, the afflicted may be comforted, the confused may be clarified, the broken may be healed. By this, our ministry, for you and for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.